Here we go. It's June the 7th in the year of our Lord, 2023. You're listening to Law and Gospel on this Wednesday. And normally on Wednesday, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs. But last Sunday was Trinity Sunday. And there was a special creed for that Sunday. We call it the Athanasian Creed. And individuals can write to me with any questions they have. My email address is Tom Baker at brick.net. That's B R I C K dot net. And I can also respond to questions on Friday. Well, early in the fourth century, there was a North African pastor named Arius. He began falsely teaching that Jesus Christ was not truly God. The church responded decisively in A.D. 325 with a statement of faith. We call that the Nicene Creed. It confessed that Jesus is, in fact, true God. So at that point, we had the Apostles' Creed, and it's called the Apostles' Creed, because the words in it come from the apostles in the Bible. But toward the end of the fifth century, another creed was written that went further into the mystery of the Trinity. Although it is attributed to Athanasius, that's why it's called the Athanasian Creed, who is a fourth century opponent of Arius, it really was an anonymous creed that clearly came at a later stage in the debate. But it was dealing with a lot of the teachings of Athanasius. The Athanasian Creed declares that its teachings concerning the Holy Trinity and its Lord's incarnation are what is referred to as the Catholic faith. Now, for many people, when they hear the word Catholic, they immediately think of the denomination Roman Catholic. But the word Catholic really is a confession of the true church of all times and of all places. More than 15 centuries later, the church continues to confess this truth confident that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has given himself for our salvation. And so on Trinity Sunday, many congregations will confess the entire Athanasian Creed. And it takes about six minutes to do that. But we want to take a look at it because as I've mentioned before, one of the worst sermons I ever did was about the Athanasian Creed. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. How can you give a sermon on the Creed and not think it's a sermon? Well, we made a distinction between what is a Bible class and what is a sermon. A sermon talks about the forgiveness of sins. It 
focuses on Jesus Christ as our Savior. And therefore, the very first part of this Athanasian Creed, whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Now, what's interesting about this is that there are 40 verses to the Athanasian Creed. The first 26 deal with an explanation as best as we are able to talk about the Trinity. And the last verses, 27 through 40, talk about Jesus Christ specifically. I believe that is the last part of the Athanasian Creed that really is sermonic material. It's sermonic material because it focuses on the work of Jesus Christ and our salvation. Well, how can you say that therefore an explanation of the Trinity isn't part of the gospel? Well, let's take a look at parts of it. It says, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. What does that mean? Well, it says the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of all three is one. This is where we get the idea of Trinity. The word Trinity means three in one. Three persons, but one God. You see, people like Arius did not believe that. Now, they believed that there's only one person and he appears in three different modes. But that doesn't make any sense because there are too many occasions in the Bible where all three are mentioned and they're quite separate. Remember, we'll take the obvious one of Jesus' baptism. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was standing in the water of Jordan to be baptized. God the Father spoke from the crowd, cloud. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit, it says, came down from heaven like a dove and alighted on Jesus. So it's very clear that there are three persons. And in one sense, they are quite equal. For example, the creed says the Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. What does that mean? It means there never was a time that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did not exist. They were not a part of the creation of the world. It then says the Father is infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite, 
the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. In, in other words, they are totally eternal from all times. Angels were created. Human beings were created. And angels and believers are referred to as semi-eternal. That is, they have a beginning, but they have no end. They'll be in heaven forever and ever. In contrast to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who also had no beginning, but are eternal. And then you have characteristics. The Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. Also, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet, the creed says there are not three almighties, or three gods, or three lords, but only one. So, we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord. So, we are prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or three lords. This goes on. The Father is not made nor created nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. Now, those words are taken right out of Scripture. The Son is the only begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Remember when Jesus was on earth, he said, I will send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit proceeded. So, in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal, so that in all things, as has been stated, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. And whoever desires to be saved must thus think about the Trinity. Now, why don't I consider that sermonic material? Because there are a lot of religions that don't believe in the true God, but they do believe in gods they invent that are almighty, all-powerful, in control of everything. And, and so, to believe that there is an almighty God is not sufficient for salvation because 
the only Almighty God is the Holy Trinity. To believe that there is a God who is omniscient, who knows all things, that doesn't save anyone because there are religions that believe that the God that they have invented knows all things, that he may even be considered to be almighty, and also that he is everywhere. So we need to be very careful that when we say that someone must believe the Catholic faith, it's not sufficient to believe in God, who is almighty, who is all-knowing, and who is everywhere, when that is not the Holy Trinity. And that's why in verse 27, it continues, but it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, although there are three persons in the Godhead, only one of them, namely the second person, whom we came to know as Jesus, only he became a human being. He became incarnate. And therefore, verse 28 says, it is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. That's what the disciples never figured out until the resurrection of Jesus, when Thomas declared him, my Lord and my God. Until then, they thought he was just a man, but a tremendous man with great powers to feed 5,000 people with a little bit of food, to stop the wind and the wave on the Sea of Galilee. But they didn't realize that he was God and man. Now, the creed goes on to help us explain that. He is God. Why? Because he's begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages. What does that mean? Well, in the day that this was written, the term substance meant the essence. Uh, for example, if you have a fox and the fox loses a leg in a trap and he escapes, is he still a fox? Well, well yes. And so we make a distinction between the essence or the substance of an item or an animal or a person and what was called the accidents, 
A-C-C-I-D-E-N-S, namely the parts that put him together. So he was God because he was begotten from the essence of the Father. And he is man because he was born from the substance of his mother, namely the Virgin Mary. Therefore, the creed says, he's perfect God and perfect man because he's composed of a rational soul and human flesh. Now, here's where the creed is helpful because it seems at times that God, the Son, is not all-powerful or all-knowing. Uh, remember, he himself doesn't know when the last day will take place. So what we're dealing with is a situation where in his state of humility, that's him becoming a human being, he did not make use of his divine attributes. So he was equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, but he was less than the Father with respect to his humanity. That means that in a state of humiliation, that is found in Philippians, for example, he humbled himself and became as a human being for one purpose, and that was to suffer and die for your sins. That's tremendous. That apart from his death on the cross, your sins would never have been paid for. That he died as your substitute. Therefore, he is God and man. But that doesn't mean he is two people, but he is one Christ. One, however, not by conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. Therefore, as a human being, Jesus remains God. I once asked Sunday school teachers, is Jesus still a human being when he's in heaven? And I was surprised to find that a few of them said, no, he's not. But you see, yes, he is. He ascended into heaven. Remember, they saw him go up in the clouds of the air. And he went up as a human being. And the angel said that's how he is going to return. Therefore, in his ascension into heaven, all the attributes of the divinity were given to also the humanity. In his humanity, he now knows all things. He is all-powerful. And he is everywhere, which means we have no problem in doing the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the altar, receiving the very body and blood of Jesus Christ 
because Jesus is everywhere. Verse 35 says, For as a rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. And now comes the sermonic part. Who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. See, that's the gospel. That is the work of Jesus Christ as God and human who suffered for your salvation, who rose again the third day from the dead, who ascended into heaven and is now at the right hand of the Father, which simply means all his divine attributes are now shared with his humanity. And he will be returning to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, verse 38, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life and those who have done evil into eternal fire. Now, when you read that, not in the context of the Bible. It sounds like you're going to be saved by your works. Either you've done good and will enter into eternal life, or your works are evil and into eternal fire. But a close examination of that shows differently. In the parable of the sheep and the goats. The sheep are definitely congratulated on all their good works, which they themselves cannot even remember because they realize that they were sinners while they were here on earth. But God is referring to the good works that the Holy Spirit did with them after they were baptized or converted into the faith because of their love of Jesus Christ, they wanted to obey his commandments and did often obey his commandments. It is the works of sanctification that are being spoken of here, not the works that a human being concocts for himself or herself, because all those fall short of the glory of God. But when you have faith that Jesus Christ died for you, that he rose from the dead for you, this is tremendous. And therefore, those who have done good in the area of sanctification that God recognizes, they will enter into eternal life. And those who have done evil, who do not believe 
in Jesus Christ will enter into eternal fire. That's what happened to the goats in the parable of the lost sheep. And so the last verse, but this is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully, firmly, cannot be saved. Now, what does it mean to believe it faithfully and firmly? Does it mean that you never sin again? No. But it means that you repent of those sins. Because repentance is grief over what you have done to Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins, and then you go ahead and continue to sin by thought, word, and deed. But God the Father remembers the words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So the Catholic faith makes a distinction between those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will be coming from there to judge the living and the dead. That's the gospel. And so an explanation of the Trinity, as found in the first part of the Athanasian Creed, is helpful because it uses the biblical language to explain that there are not three gods, but only one. This is the Catholic faith. And whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. But if you believe it, you are definitely saved. I'm Tom Baker. Be with us tomorrow for a continuation of the study of law and gospel. Till then, God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your checkout to Law and Gospel and mail to Law and Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132, or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.